Great to be with you all uh, today, and Patrick, thanks uh, so much for the privilege of uh, inviting me in. I was away at the beach last week, too, um, but I was okay with preaching. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, 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 I'm, I'm very glad that you were able to get away and be able to get a break, and um, uh, being on staff at Chapelgate, where we have a number of pastors, you don't get that opportunity to preach every week, and so um, as a preacher, you love to get those opportunities to preach, and so you take them when you can get them, and uh, I am really, really thankful uh, to be able to be here with you guys all uh, this morning. Uh, our passage today uh, comes from uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, the very first book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be uh, taking a peek at the first 11 verses uh, of Ecclesiastes, so let me read those for us this morning. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, said the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun." Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new, it has been done already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to be together, to be gathered here as your people, Lord, and uh, to come to your word. Lord, uh, uh, Lord, speak through me. Uh, through my inadequacies, through my uh, insecurities, Lord, that your message might go forward this morning. And we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Uh, There was a recent study that was done by Johns Hopkins University uh, where they surveyed over 8,000 college students. uh, And they surveyed it through 48 different universities. So these were not just uh, Hopkins students. Um, But it was one of the largest studies of its kind And they asked students one question. And the one question they asked these students was, what do you consider to be very important? What do you consider to be very important? So you might think that the answers may have been, well, uh, what's very important is I want a successful job, or I want to make a lot of money, or I want to have a nice family, I want to serve others, Um, I want to make the world a better place. All those things are good answers, but they were not Uh, the number one answer. In fact, uh, it was an overwhelming number one answer. 75% of those surveyed said what they considered to be very important was finding purpose and meaning in life. 75% said that was the most important thing they could think about. You know, I think if we stop here for a second, we can probably acknowledge this. You know, everything we do as humans is connected to finding some sort of meaning and purpose in life. We may not be verbally asking that question out loud, uh, but we silently ask that question. Sometimes we silently scream that question. What am I supposed to do? Why am I here? What is life all about? 
And this is not just a question that should be left to university halls um, or counseling offices. Uh, it's a question we wrestle with every day, and it doesn't matter whether you are a Christian, or a Christian, a Muslim, an atheist, a Mormon, or Jew. It doesn't matter. Why? Why? Well, it's because of how we were created. Every single one of us has been created for life to have meaning and purpose. It's embedded in our DNA. And until we find that purpose, we will remain restless. Well, Ecclesiastes itself is a, is a fairly difficult book. Um, uh, many years ago, as the canon of the Bible was forming, the book of Ecclesiastes was one of those books that they had a hard time even uh, thinking should be put in the Scripture because the book itself is more a book of, of asking questions without any real hope or answer to it. And uh, so it, it offers some, some challenges. Um, traditionally, it's believed that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Sometimes that's uh, debated, but I'm not really here to worry about the author uh, of it. We are uh, um, uh, going to concentrate, uh, in a sense, uh, um, more on its message. But if we were to assume, based on some of the language in the text here, it, it, if it was Solomon, and that's traditionally what was believed, Solomon had everything. He had wealth beyond imagination. He had women at his, at his, uh, at his beck and call. In fact, it says he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's over 1,000 women. Uh, he had power. He had fame. He had fortune. And when you think of it, you know, he had pretty much attained the big three, money, sex, power. He had it all. Um, But you know, as people, as a culture, we think, man, if I had what Solomon had, if I had everything that he had, man, I would be satisfied. And uh, you know who else gets this idea? Is the marketing and commercial industry. Um, All we have to do is turn on TV and watch uh, commercials for a little bit. And uh, we see every single commercial begin to appeal to those deep longings that we all have. Um, marketers know that the best way to sell a product uh, um, is uh, to sell it not for what the product is, uh, but what deep longing they can convince you that product will give to you, whether it be cars or deodorant or clothing or pharmaceutical drugs. All these items are being sold to convince us that our life will be more meaningful if we have them. Um, Jerry Seinfeld, the, uh, uh, of course, the, the, the main actor of the show Seinfeld, which went on for generations. He's a comedian. Um, this past November... He was given an honorary Clio Award. Now, a Clio Award is awards that are given to um, the people in the marketing and the commercial industry. Um, it's the advertising industry. They have their own big shindig, and they give out all these awards. Uh, Jerry was there, and he was given an honorary one. I'm not sure why he was given an honorary one, but he was. Um, and so he got up to give his acceptance speech, and this is what he said in his acceptance speech. Jerry said, in advertising, everything is the way you wish it was. I don't care that it actually won't be like, excuse me, I don't care that it won't actually be like like it when I actually get the product being advertised because in between seeing the commercial and owning the thing, I'm happy and that's all I want. Tell me how great the thing is going to be 
I love it. I just want to enjoy the commercial. We know the product is going to stink. We know that because we live in the world and we know that everything stinks. We all believe, hey, maybe this one won't stink. We are a hopeless species, stupid but hopeful. But we're happy in the moment between the commercial and the purchase. And I think spending your life trying to dupe innocent people out of hard-won earnings to buy useless, low-quality, misrepresented items and services is an excellent use of your energy. And then he concluded by saying, so thank you all for this great honor and all your great work. I hope it makes you happy as you have made me happy for these five minutes of my life, which will last until I get to the edge of this stage. And it hits me that this was all just a bunch of nonsense. Thank you and have a great evening. You see, you don't need any great philosophers or any great textbooks to understand this. Uh, We all see how empty this world itself really can be. And when we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, we come to this raw and very honest summary of life and reality. So why do we need this message of Ecclesiastes? Well, we need it because it's true. Uh, The great author Herman Melville, great novelist, said he described the book of Ecclesiastes as the truest of books. Uh, Another theologian said the... uh, He said, the function of Ecclesiastes is to bring us to the point where we fear that such a conclusion, that all is vanity, is the only honest one. Because it's at the point we become thoroughly disillusioned with everything the world has to offer that we look outside of the world for our hope. And so that's what we want to do. Let's move into our passage. And I really only have uh, two points for us this morning. Uh, The first one is meaning lost, and the second is meaning found. Solomon kicks off the book with his thesis, um, his premise, and we all learn in our English and composition classes um, how important getting your thesis statement is, 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 because if you have your thesis right, then the rest of your paper will flow logically out of it. And so we are given his, and it comes in verse 2. When he says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word for Hebrew that's translated here as vanity is habel, and its literal meaning is a vapor or a mist. A mist. And if you think about it, that's a great word to describe it because um, vapor and mist have such an elusive quality to it, doesn't it? There's uh, sort of this um, sense you can see it and then it's gone. You try to grab it and you can't. Um, it doesn't last. It's insubstantial. And a matter of fact, that word, Habal, is used 39 times in the book of Ecclesiastes as it refers to life. And this is why um, other translations will, will translate that word differently. Um, some, some translations will, instead of vanity, will use the word meaningless. Um, uh, and uh, and other, other books, like Psalms, will actually literally translate it as breath. Psalm 39.5 says, our days will vanish like a breath like a mist. Um, But in the ESV, which is what I read from, it's translated as vanity. And I think that might be one of the best words really to sum it up because it really gives a sense of these brief, our brief little lives that are marked by sort of these vain pursuits of trying to find meaning in life before we die. We also in this passage have to notice the use of repetition. Um, not only is it used twice in the same phrase, but the phrase itself is repeated multiple times. So repetition um, was uh, 
part of a writing style that was used and repetition was done for emphasis. And so when you would put a word of the same next to each other, it would uh, be adding emphasis to it. Um, Sort of like, truly, truly, I say unto you, or holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You can think of them almost as exclamation points that you're putting onto it. And so when he says vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, the multiple times he's using that word vanity is he is putting multiple exclamation points on it, as you might do in a text message or something like that, um, to really, or all caps. He wants you to pay attention Because what he's saying here is what is important for us to understand. He means it. And he says, vanity, 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 vanities, vanity of vanities. He says, all is vanity. How much of life is vain, meaningless, a mist, a vapor? He says, all of it. He says, all of it. He tells us there is not a single aspect of man's life, um, of our human existence that does not get frustrated by the futile uh, attempts we make at trying to gain and grab life. And he goes on then to give us some illustrations of this. In verse 3, he demonstrates the vanity in our work, in our toil. What gain is there for work and toil? Um, what meaning or profit? You know, I think about that, especially as when I mow my grass every week and then I mow my grass and then the next week I'm out doing the exact same thing. I feel like vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I just grows and you cut it again. Um, but what are we doing? And we think about the people we know who, who get frustrated in their work and in their jobs. Verses four and six, he talks about vanity and just the repetitiveness of life. Generation after generation, he says, comes and goes in verses four through six. Uh, nothing new. There's sunsets, sun rises, winds blow from the east, and they come around. Water continues to flow, and it all seems to be without consequence and without a purpose. And he says, in this, there is no satisfaction that can be found. In verse 8, he says that all things are weary, that the eye is not satisfied with what it sees and the ear is not satisfied with what it hears. There is this restless longing in the author of these verses. So let me ask you all a few questions and you don't need to answer out loud. Um, For those of you in this room who are committed to exercise, whether it be working out at the gym or running or or yoga, it doesn't matter what it is. Let me ask you this, is, is your body perfect yet? Um, have you achieved enough results from what you've been doing and pursuing? For those of you who here who might be committed to dieting and losing weight, are you thin enough? Are you done? Have you lost enough weight? For those of you who pursue knowledge and read and study, have you learned everything you need to learn yet? Do you have enough wisdom yet? Are you satisfied in what you've learned? For those who might click when you're alone on some pornographic image, are you satisfied with what you get from that image? Are you satisfied with the intimacy it gives you? For those whose life is pursuing in their work and in their jobs, do you get enough recognition? Have you earned enough money? And we could go on and on. Do you have enough friends? Do you have enough popularity? Do you have enough fame? Are you satisfied 
is the big question. I'm not. I know I'm not. This frustration is such a reality for me. Um, In one of the ways, you know, in a very simple way, I saw this play out in my own life is um, when our when our our TV set broke a couple years ago, we had a we had a 42 inch um, uh, plasma TV, which at the time I thought that was huge. When especially when we upgraded from our 25 inch uh, tube TV, Um, so it was time to buy a new TV. And so you know you go uh, to um, Best Buy. And you see their shrine of televisions there. And, you know, I looked at the other 42 inches, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this looks so small. I can't get a 42-inch TV. So I'm there with my wife, and I said, what do you think? Can we do a 50-inch TV? How about a 55-inch TV? I think 55. It's really about the same price we paid for our 42-inch a few years ago. So we're not really spending any more money. Why don't we go with a 55-inch TV? So I twist her arm enough, and we get it home, and I set it up, and it's glorious. I'm like, Gosh, this is perfect. This is absolutely perfect. Then the next weekend, we got invited over to a friend's house to watch a football game. And my friend had just gotten a 65-inch TV. And I walk into his house, and I look at his TV, and all of a sudden, I just think, my gosh, my TV is so puny and tiny. And every time I went home after that, I would sit in front of my TV and I would go, gosh, 55 inches. What was I thinking? It is so small and so tiny and so insignificant. And ever since that day, I've been dissatisfied with this TV. Um, And I'm just praying it will break at some point soon (laughs) so we can return to Best Buy again and get a 70 inch TV. There's no TV big enough. But that's my point. There's something in sort of in us that's desperately missing that we long for. Um, And we never seem to be satisfied. The great mathematician Blaise Pascal, um, in one of his works that he wrote, he described humanity as disinherited princes. He said that everyone, every human being is a disinherited prince. We know that we used to possess something great, meaningful, but we've lost it. We once had it all, and now we've lost it. We're not quite sure what it is, but as disinherited princes, we spend our time pursuing it and going after it. Romans 1 talks about this, I believe, when it talks about that we have suppressed the truth. We've, we've put aside that remnant of God still in us, that, that sense of our true royalty, the sense that we really are created in the image of God but we suppress that truth and we really do sort of become these disinherited princes. I believe one of the keys to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes, though, is rooted in a phrase that happens 29 times in this book. And that phrase, we see it in verse 3. We also see it in verse 9. And it's the phrase that's used. It says the phrase is under the sun, under the sun. And the word under the sun was always a reference that referred to the material world, referred to the material world, what you could see, what you could hear, what you could touch. And so when the author says that everything under the sun is meaningless, he's not saying everything is meaningless. He's saying everything that I see in the material world is meaningless. The the author's examining life and its reality sort of under the sky And he says, if this really is all there is, there is nothing more than it really is vanity and meaninglessness. 
Um, it's interesting if there's a, uh, I think of a couple known uh, very out atheists who also recognize this very truth. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who was a 20th century philosopher, he was a playwright, and he recognized this. And this is what he said. He said, if God does not exist, then we must face its distressing consequences. That is that any possibility of finding value and meaning in the heavens will disappear with him. Nietzsche was a 19th century philosopher and, uh, and he declared, he was the one who declared God being dead. And this is what he said. He said, when I stare at the reality and realize God does not exist, it's frightening. And that reality, in a sense, is believed what ultimately drove Nietzsche mad. Um, it's supposedly he died in sort of a great state of some kind of psychological turmoil. If God doesn't exist, it really is frightening. And so we return again to those disinherited princes that Pascal talked about. The ones who have that sense, that innate sense in them that they've lost what they were created for. C.S. Lewis said, if I find, my, find within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the only conclusion or the only explanation I have is that I was made for another world. I was made for another world. Um, uh, Author Max Lucado wrote a book called Heaven, God's Highest Hope. And in that book, he gave this illustration. And he said, imagine that you're you're on a beach and a fish kind of washes up on shore. And the fish is still living, so it's kind of just laying there flopping, its mouth and gills kind of opening and closing. Um, And we find that fish and we go, oh, you know, I want to help this fish out. Um, So we think, how how can I give this fish some help? So we go get him a a beach chair and a pair of sunglasses, and we set the fish in the beach chair and the sunglasses. Say, here's what you need. You just need this. Oh, maybe you need some shade. We'll go grab an umbrella for him. But the fish just stares at you, and the gills just keep opening, and it doesn't seem to be helping um, uh, so then we go and we give him a pile of cash. Uh, we say, here's some money, maybe some credit cards. Maybe we offer to just take him over to the mall, get him some things that the fish like to get, maybe some kind of wheels, who knows? But the fish just keeps staring and staring and its mouth keeps opening and its gills, you know, open and shut. You know, you think about that. You came across somebody doing that. You would think, what an idiot. How silly, how stupid. But here's the issue. Why is the fish not happy? Why is the fish not happy? The reason is the fish was never made to live on the beach. The fish was never made to live in this world. The fish was created for something different altogether. And the reason I believe is that we struggle so badly with finding meaning in this world is we were never meant or created to be satisfied with this world. We were created for something different altogether. And that was the glory of God in our relationship with him. And this is good news. This really is good news. We're not left to despair. We're not left without hope. And see, you and and I, we will never run to Jesus. We'll never run to the great physician. 
until we ultimately recognize the depth of our illness and the depth of our need. And I believe that this is what Ecclesiastes is doing here. It's asking the questions that the rest of Scripture gives us the answer to. And the answer is this, that life and meaning are not found under the sun. Life and meaning are not found under the sun, but rather meaning is found through Jesus, the Son. You see, meaning is only found and restored when we are connected to the one who truly does bring us hope and meaning in life. And to really see and get a picture of this, we have to leave the book of Ecclesiastes and we go to the first chapter of John. If you have that, you can turn with me. First five verses of John 1 says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the Greek, the Greek for the word word here is the word logos. And it refers to the very revelation of God, his truth. And here we are told that in the very beginning was the Lagos, was the truth. And then we're told that this truth was Jesus himself. And then in verse 4, it says, in him, in Jesus, in this truth, the very revelation of God is life. Here's what God wants to reveal to us. Life. And to all who receive him, they were given the right to become children of God, to be restored to what we've lost. Those disinherited princes can once again find their place. This is is seen, this theme is webbed throughout uh, Jesus' teaching, especially in the book of John. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 10, 10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that they might have life and have life to the full. See, Jesus lived and he died so that we would be restored to what was lost. He died so our lives could have meaning and died so that our lives could have purpose and died so that our lives could have significance. You see, Jesus subjected him, his own self to the curse of a meaningless, futile world in order to free us from it. And that's the gospel. And that is good news. That is good news. If you're here today and you happen to be a skeptic of some type, I don't want you to despair. And I don't want you to feel like I'm telling you to just blindly trust what I'm saying or blindly disregard your questions. In verse 13, if you go a little further of Ecclesiastes, the author says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom. You see, he was a diligent seeker of truth. That's what he was after. And that would be my encouragement to you is to keep on diligently seeking truth. Seek that truth honestly and seek it diligently. Because if Jesus' words really are true, then I believe that if your pursuits are honest, then your pursuits will ultimately lead you to him. God promises in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And that's our hope. When we get confronted by our empty pursuits, those moments where we are sort of living sort of with this disinherited identity, 
The call of Jesus says, come to me. Come to the cross to repent, to find forgiveness, and to find life. That's why we come here to this table. Because it's here when we feast on Christ and what He's done for us, we find our enough. We find our satisfaction. Because it's here that we meet Jesus, the One who gives us life. Let's pray.